So, good morning, everybody. Been feeling the weight of this sermon a lot because it's about Job, the good man suffering. And it's pretty full on. But before I do that, I just wanted to really acknowledge the fact that right now Kerry's going out there to do Sunday school and all the other teachers that prep up for Sunday school. And for what it's worth, I just want you to know that I think Sunday school is just as important, just as critical and just as significant in God's kingdom work as what I'm about to do now. And probably just as important and as significant and as critical as as anything. So I thought I'd just pray for Kerry because I know she's been prepping up uh, and I know all the other Sunday school leaders do as well. I'll pray for them and pray for us. And just thank you for the, the music and the fellowship this morning. It's been really good. Father, thank you for your magnificent word that is actually going to slap us in the face a little bit. It's going to be a little bit confronting. That's how your word is sometimes. It corrects, it rebukes, it encourages. Sometimes all three at once. And Lord, as we think about this weighty topic of suffering, that we will just have your wisdom. We really need it. Your reality. We really need it, Lord. And I really want to pray for Sunday school as well as they cover off on your word in there that their hearts will be open. Those little kids that are just so open, sometimes a bit ratty, but also open to new ideas, concepts, or just refreshed old ones. I just pray that that's how we'd be because you've asked us to be open and humble like little children. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we're in our mega series, our Meet God Almighty <laughs> series, and this is a big one. And you might, you might be saying, well, why did you put Job here straight after essentially finishing off Genesis? And the reason is no one really knows when Job was written. It was probably an oral tradition for quite some time. And if you look at some of the literary features, you actually see that Job may well predate anything else in the Bible in terms of when it's been written. Um, Genesis and things like that obviously are before, but in terms of where Job is, he may well be even before the flood. We're not sure. We don't know. There's certainly some indications there. Uh, So we thought, oh, I'll just, well, I thought I'll throw Job in here um, just because it seemed to be pretty pertinent. And the reason it's pertinent is because you'll all suffer. If you haven't already, you'll all struggle with extreme pain at some point, extreme loss. And so I really want us to soak ourselves in Job and have a think about that. Because I really want you as a church to know and understand God's heart in this man called Job and in the suffering that is to come in the future. And so it's hard to prepare for a book like Job because it's so long for a start. It has so many different things going on in it. Um, So bear with me if I don't cover off on everything. I just encourage you, as I always do, to just read it yourself. There's so much poetics, um, use of metaphors and different literary tropes. It's a beautiful book. It's also a horrible book in terms of what it covers. So I encourage you to just soak yourself in some of those metaphors later on because part of the solution in Job is actually doing that, is actually looking at creation, looking at beautiful pictures that are in creation and going, how does that juxtapose with suffering? Uh, so I'll put this question up here. On a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain level? Has anyone been asked that before? On a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain level? What did you say, Kat? Was that your knee? Who else has been asked that question? That's a 4. Yeah, or maybe during pregnancy? Oh, they don't. They don't. <laughs> what, yeah, what, what, did you, what was your answer? 
nine and a half. Um, nine and a half. I've heard some people yell out like 100, 15, 12. Um, Rick, what about you? Yep, nine plus. So um, the pain scale, as you know, the pain assessment scale is something that the clinicians use quite a lot to determine what your pain is so they can work out how much medication to give you. And as you can see there, zero is no pain, everything's cool, up to 10 unimaginable, almost unspeakable pain. So we've had a few people that are kind of close to that. Obviously in my care flight days, I got to see a lot of that, a lot of different types of suffering. Uh, you know, the hip, often the, the breaking of the hip used to be a really bad one, that was right up there, nine or 10. Oftentimes crush or fracture, uh, Injuries was right up there. Long-time disease, long-term disease, sometimes because of what it's doing to the nerve endings and so forth, uh, right up there. Number 10, terrible pain. Uh, so we notice here that four to six is sort of more moderate pain. I think, has anyone never experienced pain? Everyone, it's just a, it's a part of our existence, isn't it? In fact, I reckon we're probably on the pain scale almost every day. You know, one to three, doesn't interfere with your regular activities. You may notice the pain, but you can tolerate it. It might just be a little niggly knee thing, or it might be just an insect bites you, or it might be you, you jam your finger or you knock yourself on the door. One, you, you know, you're one to three. We're experiencing pain every single day. Uh, every single day. And as we get up towards seven to nine, we see that the pain increases until it's so bad that it stops you from doing things. Stops you from sleeping, it interferes with your regular activities. It actually begins to become almost like a death. It, it's killing life while you're still alive. It's stopping the things that you do in life. And so I wanted to ask this question because I think this is actually the question that Job is asking. I don't actually think it's a question of why is there suffering. Everyone goes to it for that. It, it is, but it's a secondary question. I think the primary question is this. How much pain will it take to break your love? How much pain will it take to break your love? Let's say like it's seven to nine, severe pain, and it's going on for a long time. It's going on for hours, days, weeks, months, years. At what point would your love, maybe for another person, if it's in a relationship or in our context, your love and your devotion for God, at what time, at what point would that pain break your love? If you look at atheists and you look at their arguments, most of the time, particularly theists or Christians that have turned into atheists, guess what their number one argument is most of the time? If there's a good God, how can there be suffering? If there's a good God, how can he allow this kind of suffering to occur? Most times they're looking at pain and suffering and go, does not compute, I'm going to become uh, an atheist. Oftentimes it's they're observing pain in other people. They become atheists over it. So this, this question of pain is really important because their love, and I could give you many names, I won't, their love was broken by this. So if you're in pain, how much pain would it take to break that love, that devotion that you have for God? How much pain would it take to break the faith and the dependence that you have in God? So what I want to do is just I want to put that question on auto hover. It's just going to hover over us the whole time. I may go a little bit longer. I've already talked to Kerry about it. And I'm not going to make too many apologies except to say that this is pretty important. So I actually want to spend a bit more time with it. And I do feel a bit bad. So if you need to go as a parent, go out with kids and come back, that's fine. Um, if you don't catch it all, you can listen to it later, hopefully online. But I, I may go a little bit longer, if that's okay. Okay. So... That question's on auto hover. How much pain, how much loss 
would it take to break your love? And here's another question, you know, what would you want to hear? Say you're in that suffering now, you're in that pain, seven to nine pain, and it's going on and on and on and on. What are the kind of things you'd want to hear? And say for us, say we're not suffering, but we see our friends, our brothers and sisters suffering, and, and we, want to, we want to help them. What are the things that you, you, you might want to say to them, to try and encourage them? We're often told, don't say anything, because you just say something dumb. Well, yeah, there's probably a time not to say anything, but I'll bet there's a time to say something. What would you say? You know, in the book of Job, all 42 chapters, we have such an awesome case study. We get to look into the heart of extreme suffering and we get to let that question kind of hover. How much pain will it take? What should be said? What shouldn't be said? What happens when certain things are said? We've got such a beautiful picture. And in it all, the question is, will this pain break the back of Job's love? For God, his devotion to God, his in the in the scriptures it says blessedness towards God. He's got this like delightful joy in God, in serving God. He's a, he's a true believer. This guy, he's a he's a man of faith. He walks the talk. Will but will this pain, this suffering, break the back of Job's love? And really, the question is, will it break the back of our love? Now, what kind of pain and suffering are we talking about here? All right. So, in now. Because of the nature of this sermon, because of the nature of the book of Job, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm encouraging you not to look at your Bible today, but I'm encouraging you to look at it later because if you look at it now, you'll get distracted from the theme and flow of this sermon, which has taken me literally months to put together because I've been listening to it, I've been reading it. So I'm not saying don't check me later. You can check me later, but I just ask that maybe just take a quick note, then go and read later and just go with me on the flow of this because I believe this is the literary flow of Job. So we're going to track it out. That's why it might take a little bit longer. But we're going to start with what Job and his friends can see, but no one else can see. Because oftentimes, that's how our suffering comes. We don't have the first couple of chapters of Job to give us some context. All we have is, I'm suffering. I'm suffering. I'm in pain. And this is, so we're going to pick up where Job is actually suffering. And so we're told that the nature of his suffering is this. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan is involved. Okay? Not once does God... Um, lift his hand towards Job actively. Matter of fact, up in this point, we can safely assume that Job has been protecting Job. Uh, sorry, God has been protecting Job from Satan. Satan, if he had his way, would just love to torture Job incessantly. And each one of you. So right now, God is actually holding Satan back from doing that. In this particular case, he gives him permission and Satan goes out of the presence of the Lord and he afflicts Job with painful boils. Now, Hebrew just boils, sores, could mean anything, some sort of skin condition. And we see that Job takes a piece of broken pottery and he scrapes himself with it. It's a terrible scene. And then in Job 7 to 5, uh, verse 5, he says, My body is clothed with worms and scabs. Infection is so bad that there's actually worms. My skin is broken and festering. And we actually see a progression in his disease because by the time we get to Job 30, where he's again recounting what is happening to him, he says, my skin grows black and it peels, my body burns with fever. And I was thinking to myself, what might this disease have been? So I don't know, what, what do you do when you've got symptoms these days? Well, I Googled it. And I was going to show you a picture and I decided not to. It was amazing how well the symptoms, and there's other ones, there's like, he's not sleeping, uh, his days fly by like the, the shuttle's weaver, like, like there's a, a time and space kind of 
thing that's happening is, uh, and yet it actually all fits in perfectly with a necrotizing skin infection and necrotizing cellulitis. Let me read it, some of it. The skin may look pale at first. It's, it's actually uh, infected skin and tissues dying. Okay? Some people call it flesh eating because the skin, it's not actually the flesh being eaten, it's just the flesh rotting, literally dying. Um, so the skin becomes red, bronze, warm to touch, and sometimes swollen. Later, the skin turns violent, violet, often with the development of large fluid-filled blisters. That's where the pottery comes in. There's the bits of broken pottery. The fluid is brown, watery, and sometimes foul-smelling. He says, I've become offensive even to my wife. Areas of dead skin turn black. You know, we saw before, he says, my skin is turning black and literally begins to fall off. Again, I didn't want to show you some pictures because it is terrible when you see it. As the skin dies, the nerves stop working and the area loses sensation. The gas that's produced creates bubbles under the skin. Again, the smell. Blood pressure may fall because of the toxins secreted by the bacteria. Mental deterioration, high fever, rapid heart rate. And I didn't say that to be gratuitous. I just say it to point out that this kind of suffering is not just a couple of pimples, okay? It is terrible. And so how much necrosis would it take to break the back of your love? And imagine if it just went on and on and on, like it did for Job, possibly for months. We're not really sure of the time, but it seems to go on for a long time. And that wasn't all, was it? It wasn't that that was all he had to deal with and he still had his family around him, he still had his riches, he still had his nice house to live in, He'd lost it all. His property, his possessions, his precious family ripped away by fire, wind, and sword. Fire, wind, and sword. And so we go, well, how much loss would it take to break the back of Job? And often we look at Job and we go, And we're told, mainly because we have not actually, I believe, saturated ourselves in the mode and the tone and sort of the substrata of Job. But most of the time we go, oh, Job, what a wonderful, uh, wonderful example of patience in suffering. It's not quite that simple. Okay. Because the question, like we said, is, you know, will this pain break the love of Job, the love of Job that he has for God? And So we expect lovely sentiments like, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We made a song on that, didn't we? Straight from Job. We love singing that. Do you know where that is in Job? At the end or at the beginning? It's right at the start of his suffering, literally right at the start of his suffering. And you can actually see, and we're going to see it, a progression from what I call little stars. That's a little star. That's a little grace. That's a little, wow, that's amazing. In the darkness, his twinkling of a star. But the stars start to go out the further you get into Job. How much loss would it take to break his love? Let's have a look at some of the things that Job says and then that his friends say in return. We're not going to do the whole sort of 20 chapters or so of this. We're just going to get a general feel. And I just invite you to um, read that yourself. So Job's three friends come along for seven days. They just sit with him, don't say anything. And you you can almost see the mental cogs going, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And it's going on and on and on. We thought he was good. We thought he was blessed by God. Something must be going on. And then Job speaks. So there's been silence for seven, week, uh, seven days. 
And you know, the first thing he says is essentially, I wish I'd never lived. After this, Job opened his mouth. He cursed the day of his birth and he said, may the day of my birth perish and the night it was said, a boy is born. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. Why didn't I perish at birth and die as I came from the wound? The womb. He's going like, why would you bless me for so long and then hit me with this? What was the point of that? You should have just killed me when I was first born. You should have not even given me existence. And I can almost guarantee if we were to go through this kind of suffering, we'd be going, what is the point of this? It feels so meaningless. I wish I never lived. We haven't written a song about this one. I don't know. May the day of my birth perish and the night it was said a boy is born. We've never made a song of that. And yet it is part of this song of Job. You know, this big book of Job. And has Job said anything sinful at this point? Has Job said anything untheological? Again, it's, it's not an easy answer, is it? Does it mean that he stopped loving God? I don't think so. But it's not as simple as to say my faith is keeping me strong. So you're a friend, right? And you hear this. You hear someone pray, they have extreme suffering going on, there's severe pain, seven to nine. You hear this, you hear them say, I wish I was, I wish I was never born. I wish God would curse the day of my birth. What are you going to say? Are you going to just sit there and go, yeah, maybe some of us will. Job's friends feel like they have to say something. And, you know, everyone always dishes Job's friends, but like if you just heard a man that loved God say that, wouldn't you want to try and encourage him in some way? Wouldn't you want to try to get to the root cause of what's going on so that this suffering might stop? And if you'd been trained in your theology for all your life to believe that suffering only happens to bad people or because they've done sinful things, what are you naturally going to bring out at this point? Because your only other option is to go, well, actually, no, Job is being, he's suffering and there's no actually real reason for it or maybe even God's doing something bad here. That's the only other option this guy's got. There's just two options. And so he says, this is Eliphaz, the Temanite. These are all wise guys, wise dudes. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Remember, Job's scraping pustules and things like that. Think how you instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety, that just means your reverence for God, should not your reverence for God be your confidence? I.e., should not your faith be your confidence now? And your blameless ways, your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? I don't know if that's something you would say. So you're the sufferer, you hear this, you scrape another blistered kind of pustule and perhaps running through your mind and just little glimpses of your kids as they've been brought up. Um, Little glimpses of the, the beautiful property that you owned. And it's like, suddenly theologizing is really, really irritating, hurtful, mean, so missing the point. So missing the point. But wait, there's more. 
In the next chapter, Eliphaz tells us where he's getting some of his theology from. And he says this, and we think that Satan just shows up in the first couple of chapters. He actually shows up again here in Job 4. Go check this later. Not now. A word was secretly brought to me. This is Eliphaz speaking. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men. So he's asleep. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. I stopped. I couldn't tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. So this spirit has come in. We know it's not a spirit from God because of what it says next. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? That sounds right so far, doesn't it? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth? Between dawn and dusk, they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? So this spirit is doing exactly the same thing that Eliphaz is saying, is that there's got to be something wrong with Job. There's got to be. Here's the problem. We are told in the first two chapters that Job is righteous, blameless. And one of the times we're told that, it's God saying that. God himself says this man is blameless, upright, righteous. So the writer wants us to know that that is not the answer. And if this is a satanic spirit... Isn't it interesting because he's saying if he charges his angels with error and puts no trust in his servants, a mere mortal, a mere human, how can he be more righteous than God? As in, how can he actually justify what he's saying right now? And yet there is a way to be righteous with God. The way God has provided. We'll learn more about that later. But suffice to say, all that stuff then leads into this idea, you're doing something wrong It needs to change. If you'll change, then you won't suffer anymore. That's what Eliphaz Eliphaz says next. Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. So Job, pustules, blistered, pain, fever, loss of family. And he's told, don't despise this discipline of God. It's for your own good. Except we know, Job doesn't know, but we know that's not why he's being um, put on this sort of kind of, into this kind of suffering. God doesn't need to discipline him at this time. He's been a faithful, righteous man. But Eliphaz insists. And so what does Job say? What would you say if I'd said to you in your suffering, don't, dis- don't despise God's discipline? It sounds so theologically right, doesn't it? And it is in one way, but only in a small circle way, only in a small kind of little section, compartmentalised way. There's way more to it than that. You know what Job says? I wish God would crush me. (laughs) Easy to theologise when you're not the one in pain. Job says he is anguished and that the arrows of the Almighty have sunk into him. And oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Is, now, has he, has he said anything sinful there? Has he said anything incorrect, anything unloving? 
It's just a cry of his heart. You know in the Psalms we are told, my salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. You know the next bit? Trust him at all times. Pour out your heart to him. Pour out your heart to him. Imagine if we did that. That's what Job's doing here. He's pouring out his heart. And man, there's some stuff coming out here that's not good. There's some, there's some struggles. There's some pain. There's some... And then he goes further. He says, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends. Trouble is that they're trying to theologize. They actually think they're doing the right thing by him. We've got to tell him the good word here. But they're making it harder for him because they have not listened to God. If they had listened to God, perhaps they would not have said this kind of stuff. They're just listening to their templates, their theological templates. And if you learn nothing else from this sermon, maybe you should learn this. There's a time to put away your template, put away your theological pre-understanding and be open to the new leading of the Holy Spirit and what he might want you to say or not say. But he says, you are like intermittent streams that streams that kind of are there sometimes, they're overflowing another time, but they're just unreliable because you can't depend on them for consistency. There's beautiful metaphors all through Job. Really encourage you to just soak in those. So then a second friend says, how long can you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. This is Bildad, another friend. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When, now just think about this. His children have died, right? Think about this next, this next thing that his friend says. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. What would you say if you'd lost your children and you were told that they were given over because of the penalty of their sin? And again, it's like the writer of Job wants us to know that that's not the right answer because you know what we're told at the start? Job would intercede for his children. He was always worried when they were out having a celebration or something, they may have cursed or sinned against God. So he would intercede and pray and act like a high priest for them. And the only way that they could then be given over for their sin is if that was not effective. And we believe that the prayer of a righteous man is effective. So if he's praying for them, how can someone say, your children sinned against him, they've been given over? And basically he calls then for Job to repent. So you're the sufferer. And what would you say to that? Now you're kind of like, what do you say? Job says, how could I dispute with God? I know what you're saying is true. People should die for their sin. People are given over for their sin. But what if, outside your template, I'm actually not that guy and my family's not that family. We've actually, by faith, been made righteous before God. And now I wanted to bring up my, um, my, my complaint with God. How can I do it? How can a mortal be righteous before God? I know that to be true. That's what he says here. Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a, wit- a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He is the maker of the bear and the Orion. There's some awesome sights in Job. Read it. Get into it. The Pleiades and the constellations of the south. This is Job in his suffering. Going, probably at night looking up at the stars. I, I, how could I dispute with the guy who made that? And that just makes his suffering worse because it feels so meaningless and God's not giving an answer. How can I find words to argue with God? My eyes have seen what you've seen. My ears have heard what you've seen. What you know, I know. I'm not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty to present my case. (laughs) 
That's the core part of this. He wants to speak to God. Well, what's going on? And then he says to his friend, you're just smearing me with lies. And so this gives you a little bit of the flow for 20 chapters. Back and forth, it goes like this. Some some surprising things that if you've never read Job and really read it and really stopped and sealed it, you know, like soaked in it, thought about it deeply, uh, you'll see some very surprising things, some wonderful things, awesome things. And a lot of them sound right. They sound theologically correct. You know, a lot of the reasons for the suffering kind of sound roughly right. Blessed is the man who God corrects. Should not your reverence, your piety, your faith be your be a strength? Are you really pure? All that stuff sounds roughly right. But are any of them completely right, comprehensively right? That's the trouble. You can focus on one little part of truth and not see the rest of it. Like I said, firstly, we're told that Job is a righteous man, really righteous. The Lord himself says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. If you're, I've seen many theologians, I shouldn't say many, I overstate things sometimes. I've seen some theologians who will want to say, no, Job's still a sinner. But if he is by faith, depending on God, depending on God's means for righteousness, he is righteous. He is. Put your hand up here if you think you are as righteous as God. I was asked that question 10 years ago, no, 15 years ago. It was a big community church and I put my hand up and one other person put their hand up. So, don't, don't, so, so who here? This is a really important question, right? It's not even deeply theological. It's just basic. It's just very basic. If you have depended on the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, and you cling to him, and you have repented of your kind of dysfunctional life and your sin and so forth, and you're turning to him, and now you're depending on him? Are you not as righteous as Jesus? Because if you, if you haven't put your hand up, you're saying Jesus is not as righteous as God. And I don't, I don't want to trick you or like have these rhetorical kind of tricky questions, but, but I want you to think about that. Am I wrong? So why didn't we put our hand up? Maybe, again, it's easy when I'm up the front here, I get that. But maybe just think about that, because that's what's happening with Job. If by faith he is depending on God's means of righteousness, and we see some hints of that with the sacrifices and that kind of thing, then he is righteous. And he actually talks about later on, don't remember the sins of my youth. So he knows himself that he has sinned in the past, but because he's depending on God's righteousness, he can say he's righteous, and God says he's righteous. Anyway, now it can't be punitive, it can't be disciplining, all these kind of things that are happening, because God himself says that, you know, Job is blameless. C.S. Lewis, you know, pain is God's gramophone to get your attention. It's not the case here. Job was already fully attendant to God. So why? Why the suffering? Why does, do you know the whole, you know, do you find Job a bit laborious at times? Do you lose track? Do you kind of go, what, what were they just saying? Go back. I've read this so many times over the last few months, and it's like, oh, go back. Man, this is, this is a long one. Listen to it as well. This is long. The very mode of the literature is the mode of suffering. That's, this, that, that's how this suffering is. It's laborious. It's taking a long time. It's confusing at times. You've got to, you know, the very way it's written, is the, it's trying to replicate, I believe, what's happening here. That's why it's so long. Many commentaries will say that there's no reason given for Job's suffering, but right at the start, we're told this does this is satan satan means the accuser here 
Does Job fear God for nothing? Having you put a, a barrier around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread out through the land. But stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. That, this here, this here the, the writer wants you to know this is the reason why Job is suffering. He's suffering because of verse 12 in chapter 1. The Lord says to Satan, Very well, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. And it's very interesting because what are the means that Satan uses? Sabean raiders? A tornado? Fire? And then Job will later on go, God has raised his hand against me. God has specifically said here that it's not him raising his hand. In fact, he has raised his hand. He's lifted his hand of protection. And Satan's rolled in like a juggernaut. It's so fascinating. This is what I mean. There's so much depth. We could talk theodicy now. Why good God allows it. We could talk so much about Satan's role, God's role. We're not going to do that. But the reason... The reason that Job is suffering is because God is so interested in what will happen and probably so interested in seeing Job for himself understand and Satan and all the heavenly courtroom and all the principalities and powers that are looking in and going, uh, yeah, actually, if, if that guy there, Job, is loving God because of all the good things that God has done, praise God from whom all blessings flow, that's a good song, isn't it? We like singing that one. What if the blessings stopped? What if the blessings stopped flowing? That's the core part of Job right now. If all that's taken away, if all that's ripped away, all those blessings, what will happen? And it's evidently such an important thing. Some, some atheists scoff at this and go, oh, Look at God and, uh, God and Satan having like a heavenly barter. Oh, that's so ridiculous and so inferior. Who would write something like that? To me, I look at it and I go, because I know so much, I guess, about, oh, I don't, well, I just, maybe because I've walked with God for a while, but you know, I look at that and I go, there is something so important to God and something so important for the heavenly courts to see. And guess what? Something so important for you to see, because it's all been recorded here by the Holy Spirit, that God will lift his hand and he will allow this to occur. I don't know exactly what is going on, but I know there is something so important to God about your love being conditional, i.e. he doesn't want it to be conditional. He wants your love to be like his love, which is unconditional. It's not caveated by blessings and good times and health and wealth and prosperity. The whole thing here is, will Job go, take my pain away and take my devotion as well, like his wife says to him. Curse God and die. So for 20 chapters, theologizing, rationalizing, reasoning, questioning, answering about why the pain, why the suffering, why the loss, back and forth, back and forth. There's another question, another question. It's in auto hover the whole time. It's just infusing everything. Will the back of love be broken? Will the back of Job's devotion to God be broken? And, and there's like a heavenly courtroom that's watching. There's principalities and powers that are watching. There's Satan. Just another little kind of spread of infection 
maybe some insects to come and just crawl up with some worms. Maybe uh, go to Eliphaz in the middle of the night, whisper some things, theological things, because he, he, if, 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 if he knew it was Satan, he'd instantly go, no, nah, no. Nah. But some, some kind of things just to kind of you know, bring that home, because the big thing Job's struggling with as well is if, there's, if, if God is good, why has he done this to me? And if I've been righteous, why has he done this to me? There must be something wrong with God, maybe. Maybe God isn't even there. Will the back of love be broken? Obviously, Luke and Nicole are going to get married soon. And so while I was thinking of this, I, I kept coming back to this idea of in sickness and in health. You know, when we get married, we say sometimes the Protestant vows are in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish you. It says for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. And I began to thought, think about my relationship with Carrie and uh, think about, you know, you guys getting married. And I was thinking... Imagine if I was to say to Kerry, change the wedding vows, babe, in prosperity and wealth to love and to cherish. For richer and even richer to love and to cherish. For better and for betterer to love and to cherish. And you know what was so interesting because I sent these vows from this Tie the Knot website and I didn't scroll all the way down. There was all these Hindu vows and Muslim vows and uh, other weird vows. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. So there's like Protestant, Presbyterian, uh, Methodist, Catholic. All of those had some version of for better, for worse. Poorer, sickness. They had it all. But all those other ones didn't. Isn't that interesting? Christian wedding vows have for better and for worse. And this is, this is the gist, I believe, of Job. This, to God, this relationship is so important that it has to be like his love. It has to be for better and for worse even the worst of the worst. That's what true love is, not conditional. You know, we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But what if they did stop flowing? What if they did stop flowing? How much pain would it take to break your love? And so for 20 20 chapters or so, we have this question, will Job's love be broken? But is that actually the question? Like when you read Job, what, what is the question? What is one of the concerns you have? One of the concerns I have is that as I read it, it's like, what if Job, if you really get into it, because you often know the, the, the end from the beginning. That's the trouble with us as Christians. We always know the end. And so we don't actually enjoy the plot anymore because we know what happens. But if you didn't know what happened and you're going through it, the, the, thing, the thing that would just be there all the time, if Job breaks, if he curses God and dies, what will God do? do? Do you see? This is actually a question about what God will do. Like if, if Job snaps, if Job breaks, if Job fails, whatever failure looks like now, what will God do? That, that's, what, that's what leapt out at me. Is like, what will God do? Like if I'm not... 100% for God anymore, and I've suffered so much, and I've gone, nah, what will he do? And that's why it's not so simple as to say, Job was just this cool guy that just persevered, and he got through, because he didn't. He did get through, but it's not a nice, tidy kind of get through. What do I mean by that? Well, like I said, it's all about this question of will God still love? Did Job's love fail? Do you think Job's love failed at any time, from what you know of Job? 
again, it's not a clean question, is it? It's not a yes or yes, it, yes, it did or not. It, it's, it's, it's more complex. We noticed before, what I'm going to say is, I'm going to say it actually really started to falter and to flag, and it was at a point where it was about to, it was about to happen. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think that. It was, it was about to fail. First of all, as I said before, in Job 7, we're seeing a progression in his illness. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. By Job 30, the skin has grown black and peeling. From Job 1 onwards, there's a progressive loss of property, family, health, and it, and it goes on and on and on. So you have to understand that there's that. And when I, like I alluded to before, when I look at the book of Job, I see like a kind of a dark, barren, dead field that's, Job, that, that, that's Job's life. But there's these little stars all the way through it. You've probably seen them yourself. You're like, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Oh, blessed be. That's a little star. It's a little, a little bit of grace truth that just comes through. It's like rogue grace, rebel grace in the suffering. I even put little stars next to it as I went through. I, I've had to cut and paste so much stuff and themes and all this stuff, but I put a little star every time I saw a little bit of rebel grace, a little bit of gleaming starlight in the suffering. And so what you see in Job is the stars start to go out. What do I mean by that? Well, these little statements of awesome grace, supernatural grace, they actually appear less and less as you go through Job. For example, at the start of Job, when he loses his family and his property, Job got up, tore his robe. This is where we get the song from. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I appeared in a Batman comic just recently. Interesting where God's word shows up. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. That's a little grace breakthrough, rebel light in the darkness. But what you see the way through is light, darkness, star, darkness. Because in the very next um, chapter after he begins to suffer himself, he goes, why didn't I perish at birth? Why didn't I die? There's darkness now, the darkness of suffering. Then you get to Job 16 and he says, it's literally like the Holy Spirit's gripped him and he's beyond himself now. He's, he's, he's beyond natural. It's not what naturally would happen. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. And on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Who does that sound like? It does, doesn't it? Sounds like someone we know well. Where did he get that from? This is a star, a bit of starlight from heaven, straight into his soul, a bit of revelation that he needs. Who talks like that with necrotic skin? but then darkness again, star darkness. God assails me and he tears me in his anger. This is very, the very, just, just before that. He assails me, he tears me in his anger. He gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me, this is God, with his piercing eyes. He has shattered me. He has seized me by the neck and crushed me. Star darkness. The next star, this is very famous. I love this. In fact, put it on my gravestone. <clears throat> I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand upon the earth. You could do an alternate reading. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that one day he will stand on my grave. Who does that sound like? After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God's how I yearn for him. This is, this is the thing about Job, he's yearning. But then 
Again, right next to it, darkness. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of honour. He tears me down. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. You turn on me ruthlessly. Darkness stars, darkness stars. That was Job 19. The last time you see a star like that is in Job 19. There's another 11 chapters of dialogue back and forth, 12, 13 chapters. And all you see is darkness. The Almighty has made me taste bitterness of soul. In his great power, God has bound me like the neck of my garment, literally strangling me and he has thrown me into the mud and I'm reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. That is part of Job's last set of words. Essentially, his last set of words are, you turn on me ruthlessly, you're going to kill me. That is why I say, this is not a simple thing to say, did Job's love fail? I can tell you it was taking some pretty critical hits. And if it was a a machine, master caution lights were on everywhere, the rotor was winding down. Remember the real question here is, will God still love him? You turn on me ruthlessly. Now, just imagine God, who we believe is love, hearing that. Imagine if Kerry said to me, you, you grab me by the neck. You, you suffocate me. You, you, you've turned on me ruthlessly. You would have to be saying this. The relationship is struggling. <laughs> you wouldn't like this talk about God turning on someone ruthlessly. Eliahu is an interesting guy. Eliahu is the fourth friend. You thought there were three friends. There's fourth. Well, he's a younger friend. You can read about him yourself. He's not actually rebuked at the end of Job. And he says many things that God will later say. But he's kind of annoyed with Job because Job keeps justifying himself. And it just sounds like God is bad because that's the kind of the option. God, Job's good. God's allowing evil. So God must be bad. And he doesn't like that. You can read his justification, what he attempts to do. But he basically segues into what I think is the most amazing thing about Job. Which is, I wish there was some suitable drum roll there. Out of the north, he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. God has shown up. <laughs> you know, all the way through, you see these little glimmers and a lot of the glimmers of Job going, I want to talk to you, God. I want to talk to you. I want to see you. I want to, I want to express face to face what is going on. I mean, how many people all through history, how many Christians have cried that? Maybe in the, in the Colosseum of Nero. Maybe just on those long kind of journeys where they didn't have a place to rest their, ha- their head. And yet Christians all through history have suffered and continued on in their faith, have continued to love God. Why? I believe because of this next bit. There's a song that I love at the moment and it's called, it's by the Grey Havens and it's called At Last the King. And the whole song is this kind of idea of suffering and stuff and then at last the king, at last the king. At last the king shows up. That's what Job's like. Where is the king? Where is the king? Where is the king? And at the end, in golden splendour, at last the king shows up. Will God still love though? Will God still love? Last week I talked about there's grace for that. 
There's grace for that. Did you know, even for necrosis, even for complete loss, that God's grace will come? That, all those little sayings that Job had about, I know that my Redeemer lives, that is no doubt in my mind the Holy Spirit gripping him. That's a spiritual moment. The other stuff is in a, in a flesh. And who wouldn't be? And God knows that. But there's something so important to God. He wants the world to know. He wants history to know, to take a mark of Job, to, to, to lose it as a signpost and go, when there is suffering, there's something else going on. And it's so important to me that I'm going to let it go on. But there will be a time, at last the king. At last the king. And I think of all creation, all creation groaning. Do you know, all creation is suffering. All creation is going, where's the king? Where's the king? You know, we're told that in scripture. One day, at last the king. There's grace that shows up and we go, will the Lord continue to love Job? There's three names for God in Job. God, El, the Almighty, that's Shaddai, which is often in terms of blessing and stuff. And there's Yahweh, Lord. In this particular place, it's Yahweh, that personal name. Yahweh answers Job out of the storm. You don't see the Lord that much here. Now, isn't this interesting? Because when was the last time Job heard about a storm? It killed his children. Now, isn't this interesting? Satan used a storm. He was allowed to use a storm. He used a storm, some sort of windstorm to kill his children. Now, how does... I mean, it's hard to explain in a way. So maybe just imagine the voice, the splendor, the golden light of God, the grace of God, and it's coming out of the middle of this storm. It's almost like God, by showing up that way, is saying, I can take what Satan has done, I get inside this storm, and I'm just going like, to pour out grace and bust this apart. The very thing that brought you pain, suffering, loss, is the thing that I'll get inside of now. Wow. I just love that. Now, you expect... <laughs> uh, don't, don't, you just, don't you love God? Don't you love the Lord Jesus? Don't, I mean, don't, don't you? <laughs> don't you love him? Like, I tell you what, if I was Job and God showed up, we'd be like, whoa. And it's like all the, the paradigm just shifts. The goalposts change completely because the goalposts have basically been, God, have been Job saying, you tell me what's going on, God. Now it all changes. It's like when God shows up, and you see him face to face, everything changes. And you expect God to say a few words of encouragement. And instead, he loves Job too much to leave Job in that, you're ruthless, God. You got me by the neck. You're just going to kill me. He loves him too much to leave him that way. So he takes Job on this awesome tour, this grand tour of the cosmos, and he essentially is saying, where were you, Job? Why are you obscuring my plans with your dark sort of talk? So it's like God has a plan. It's in the Hebrew, their plan or counsel. And you're saying that it's all meaningless. I don't get it. But let me take you on a tour. And this is what we call or what I could call ob, uh, oblique education, ob, oblique theology. So if you go to many other countries... In our country, we like to go, that's your nose, Luke. That's your nose. So I'm touching it directly. In other countries, I'm not going to be able to do this because I've got a big head, but that's your nose, Luke. I brought my arm around my head in an ob- 
oblique kind of way, in an indirect kind of way. And this is the way the Hebrew um, poetry often works. It, it, it's like, like, like Jesus when he says, look at the sparrow. And he gives an explanation and he says, does not God care for the sparrow? Won't he care much more for you? He's doing the same thing here. God is doing the same thing here. He's going, look at the cosmos. I plan that out. Is it possible, Job, that when you look at that, that cosmos, and if no, I invite you as, as a congregation, just look out the window, catch a glimpse of creation. Do it now. What do you see, Andrew? Plants. What do you see, Luke? Yeah, I can see clouds. So you saw plants. If I was to go into the microscopic detail of those plants, so much planning, so much sophistication. You don't need to be told that in your head. You feel it, don't you, when you see the stars on a dark night? That's what he's doing here. He's saying, the plan, the plan, look at the plan. Look at the plan of creation. Look at its sophistication. And then he gets onto these awesome beasts, which again, I always laugh, you know, the behemoth and the leviathan. It's part of the grand tour, behemoth, leviathan. And the behemoth, apparently, in some commentaries is, uh, I think, the hippo. And the leviathan is a crocodile. And yet the behemoth has a tail that's like a cedar. <laughs> How can that? It's not a, it's not a, it's not a hippo. Um, hippo's tails are tiny. These are big creatures. That's why we don't, it's a timeless book. This, these, I believe, I personally believe these are, what do you think they are? Dinosaurs. They're massive creatures that are still around. And we could argue about why that might be the case. It doesn't fit with an evolutionary timeline. Um, we won't get into that now. Again, there's a lot of science here. The hydrology cycles here. The bear, Orion, Pelides, like many cultures didn't even know about that after Job. He knows about it. Very interesting. So if there's a plan there, why, why, why are you condemning me to justify myself before you? Why can't you see that there might be something so important to me that it's a part of my plan that you will suffer? By the way, it's not me that's ruthless. I didn't touch you once. I allowed that to happen for my own secret counsel. That was Satan. The fire, the storm, the sword. When I lift my hand of blessing, that's what happens. My hand of protection, that's what happens. But I've done it for a reason. Yep, you don't know it, but look at Behemoth. Look at Leviathan. And then, like I said, all the goalposts change for Job. Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans with dark words? Surely I spoke of things I, I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, listen now and I will speak. I'll question you. You shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Who here can say that? No one. So we're still pre-God showing up in a sense, right? Something happens for Job that all those questions, all that suffering, think about it, necrosis, terrible suffering, family, all his property gone. Something is so fundamentally profound about his meeting with God, all that goes out the window. I don't even know how that works. I don't understand that. How can all that just go... There's something that he sees about God's love that is so, oh, it's so grand and so magnificent that he's just, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said you were ruthless. 
I didn't get it. I'm sorry. God gives him abundance and blessing. God came for him right at the moment of failure, I believe. He wasn't going to let him go over there. He loved him too much, though, to leave him there. He had to re-educate him a bit, and he was happy to do that. That's important to God, even amidst the, the suffering. And we're told that the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He also had seven sons and three daughters, the same number that he started with. Uh, I honestly believe they were resurrected. I'm just going to say it. I've lived in Job for so long now, I'll get to that, and I just go, somehow or another, God resurrected them. I really believe that. I could never prove it to you, and I wouldn't argue about it. But I love this bit. He, the sons aren't named. Again, it's outside Hebrew culture. The sons would always be named before the daughters. He, he names the daughters here. And they're very beautiful, more beautiful than anyone in the land. Jemima, Keziah, Karen Hapuk. They mean like spice and kind of beauty and all that kind of stuff. Blessing and abundance. The real question of Job is how much pain would it take to break God's love? And you go, well, it's easy for God, isn't it? He just sits up there in his holy throne and he kind of cruises about and talks to Satan and gets all the principalities and powers together. And then he goes, let's, let's, let's have a look at Job. Let's have a look at what happens here. Eh? He's allowing that. Might as well have done it is what some people would say. Actually, there's a fundamental difference because we are free. So is Satan, but constrained by God's sovereignty. He can step in at any moment. Will God, will God still love? Does it even matter if he's up there in that grand throne room? You know, I said before that I love that song, At Last the King. And I'm thinking now of the worst pain you can imagine. It's the pain that was deliberately contrived by man to be the worst pain imaginable and is still to this day one of the worst pains imaginable, even with all our technology, and that is crucifixion. That is Golgotha. We would not have a very good answer for atheists if we didn't have what I'm about to tell you now. You see, Job, he was accused by Satan of having this conditional love. God says, righto, do what you want, but don't touch the man. He didn't give that grace to his son, did he? God gave his son completely over to the powers and the principalities. And they stirred up Roman soldiers, centurions, Jewish priests and and lords and stirred up the people. And Jesus Christ, God in Christ, died at pain level 10, unimaginable pain. And you don't hear from Jesus at any time as he sweats blood, as he goes to the cross, You're ruthless, my father. You hear the struggle and you hear the strain. Oh, God, like if if you can take this cup, please take it. And then that, Lord, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting that psalm. And yet he says, not my will, but yours. You know, what, what kind of love is this? A love that completely transcends circumstances. It, it must be, it must be grand, this love. It must be more than we can imagine. If it threw Job into the dirt with necrosis and it caused Job just to, go, uh, uh, when he saw it for what it really was, go, I'm sorry. 
this love must be unspeakable, unimaginable. And God must care about your love so much that, you know, the health, the wealth, everything else, it becomes secondary. Oh God, that we would know you rightly, that we would follow you with all our heart. And if we must enter into pain, you have not left us alone. You will give us stars in that dark field of suffering. You will give us gleaming light that will not plunge us into utter darkness. And you will come for us. Even if we are pushed right to the limit, you will come for us. Because we know you already have. Whatever we might say or do in our suffering, no matter how wrong or how hurtful to you, you have made a way that we can be righteous before you, that we can be loved, that we can remain in relationship because as any good father, you come for us. And I don't know. I don't know what your intent is through this. But help us, Lord. Help us to love, to have hope, to trust no matter what. Help us, Lord, when others struggle and suffer, to be those little bits of starlight, little bits of grace in their life, to speak with your words and to listen for that, to be quiet, to help when we need to. Help us to be a church that is a loving and a gracious church. In Jesus' name, amen. We remember him now in communion. We remember pain level 10. We remember... We remember he who right now protects us from dark powers. But we remember that even if those dark powers for a time have their way, we are not lost, we're not plunged into utter darkness because of that meal table there. We've been brought back into relationship with God and death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. Suffering isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. To curse God and die is the worst thing that can happen to you. But isn't it good to know that just as a father whose children have cursed him, we see that all through creation, he he comes for them and dies for them. That's why we love him. So I invite you in your own time to come forward. And um, when you come and take of the bread and take of the cup and then return, we'll keep the cup. And what I'm going to do is play a song um, called Where Were You? Which is directly taken from Job. And it's this idea of like looking to creation, looking to the sophisticated planning of God. Maybe even if you are suffering or struggling is to go out and just tonight, if the stars are out, look at them or perhaps watch the the clouds rolling over and just think all the planning that went into that. Maybe, just maybe there's a plan about my suffering. I don't know what it is, but but this song invites us to do that. And then at the end, we're going to uh, drink the cup together. Um, So, Father, speak to our hearts, I pray. In this communion time, we remember you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is the body 
broken. Think of the, you know, the, the pain that he went through for us. The blood that was spilt. Come and enjoy 